When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. When you have such a slim majority, it means that there's going to be compromises. One way to draw more people into the workforce and to draw them in productively is to pay them a higher wage. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. Inflation is running much higher than the Fed projected. There is a monitoring system that many big corporations are really contemplating as to sort of how do we keep the employees that are inside healthy. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Live from Washington, where China is looming large, even more than usual, as the U.S. and its allies around the world point fingers at Beijing over a series of cyber attacks, including the Microsoft Exchange hack. We're going to talk about it coming up with Wendy Benjaminson, Bloomberg Deputy Managing Editor for U.S. Government News. We'll also speak with Jamil Jaffer of the cybersecurity firm Iron Net Security. Later, the debate over infrastructure moves into high gear this week for a couple of reasons. We'll talk about that with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and we'll take the pulse of Congressman Don Beyer of Virginia, chair of the Joint Economic Committee. We're back in Washington, and things are busy. Big thanks, by the way, to Bloomberg's Emily Wilkins and Jack Fitzpatrick for sitting in this chair last week. Great to hear as well from, as always, Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Sheehan, Zeno, and Rick Davis. They'll be with us later this hour. So the White House is taking aim at a major government for harboring, if not sponsoring, cyber hacking. And here's the news. It's not Russia. A deliberately worded statement from the U.S., the U.K., NATO, and other allies alleging the Chinese government was behind the Microsoft Exchange hack and a series of other attacks over recent years. President Biden was asked about it today at the White House. They're still determining exactly what happened. The investigation is not finished. My understanding is that the Chinese government, not unlike the Russian government, is not doing this themselves, but are protecting those who are doing it and maybe even accommodating them being able to do it. Biden says he'll have more to learn in an intelligence briefing tomorrow morning. Let's learn more about what we know now, though, from Wendy Benjaminson, Bloomberg Deputy Managing Editor for U.S. Government News. Wendy, thanks for joining us today. Can we assume the intelligence community knows a lot more about what happened than what the president just said, if they were comfortable saying this much already? Well, I certainly hope so. <laughs> so okay. I mean, always sort of hope the intelligence community knows more than, uh, more more than, than we're telling us. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I, I think they do. And I think, um, you know, they decided to uh, begin the week uh, sort of the way they ended last one, the, the administration and the U.S. allies, 
in, um, you know, uh, criticizing China for some activity. This is the latest in a range of things that the administration has um, has criticized China for in the last week. That's right. Um, and they're saying that it could be China itself or it could be that China is looking the other way as private groups in China are conducting these excuse me, these cyber attacks, including the big Microsoft Exchange one. Mm-hmm. That's right. It's interesting that it was China and not Russia. A lot of people have been waiting to hear about the U.S. following a series of attacks that have allegedly been tied uh, to Moscow. But this is Beijing, obviously, and, and it's a relationship far different than the one we have with Russia. This is a relationship, economically at least, that I've been told both parties need. Absolutely. Both parties need each other. They really do. But Biden has signaled lately, President Biden has signaled that he is going to um, you know, uh, really focus on China. He's called it, you know, sort of the relationship of the century. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Russia's sort of what pre- former President Obama described as the kid who sits in the back of the classroom and scoffs at everything, but doesn't have the sort of economic might that China does. Um, and so, you know, they're going to try to cooperate where they can and criticize and try to hold them to account where they can. Whether they can hold them to account is a whole different argument. And won't that be factored into whatever response we have here? This is a very delicate dance if the White House is preparing some sort of cyber response. Right, absolutely. I mean, they have indicted um, four Chinese nationals affiliated with the state security ministry um, for hacking into companies. They can impose sanctions. But, you know, there's only so far he can go before things get you know, go sideways on the other end. Before it's a real um, cold war. Yeah, exactly. Wendy Benjaminson, Bloomberg's deputy managing editor for U.S. Government News. Great to have you with us, helping to set the stage here. I want to bring in Jamil Jaffer, who works in the business. He's senior vice president at Iron Net Security and director of the National Security Institute at George Mason University. Bloomberg is reporting that these hackers used over 50 different tactics to break into our networks, Jamil, including phishing emails, which I thought we had all learned about already. So welcome to the program. I wonder how sophisticated are these hackers in China? Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Look, I mean, you're going to use, no matter how sophisticated the hackers are, you're going to use the easiest tactic you have in your toolkit to get in. So if phishing works, which unfortunately it still does for a lot of actors, whether in the U.S. government um, or, or the private sector, you're going to, you know, the Chinese, the Russians, the Iranians, the North Koreans are all going to use that tactic if it gets them in. And once you're in, Right? It's all about lateral movement, moving around, finding the computers you want to get to, um, and then deploying your malware and getting in and out. So there's a lot of ways to find those folks, looking at all the different parts of the what they call the cyber kill chain. But you're right. They're using very basic tactics at times to get in. So I'm wondering then, Jamil, if we have over 50 tactics, some of these could be quite sophisticated. I just wonder if we're seeing China become more creative, or the hackers specifically, become more creative with the methods they're using to, to crack into our companies. Yeah, well, absolutely. Certainly at the high end, particularly the most, the most well-defended companies, the most well-defended government institutions, they will use sophisticated tactics. We saw, for example, uh, the Russians uh, use, uh, use a, a supply chain methodology going through a security company uh, to get into U.S. government systems. We've seen that also um, at times with these, with these ransomware hacks that Russian uh, criminal actors uh, have been using. One of the interesting things that we've seen here developing in China, we've seen in a long time in Russia, is this use of proxy actors criminal hacker gangs that are sometimes hacking for their own account, sometimes on behalf of the government, oftentimes the same people sort of blessed by the government or permitted to operate. We're now seeing more and more of that criminal-type activity 
working on behalf of the Chinese state. In this case, it actually was seen the Justice Department a few months back indict some Chinese hackers yeah. doing exactly that. And that's what happened here again today. These four hackers indicted were not Chinese government hackers. They were criminal hackers. But, so, but we know they're working with the Chinese nation state in the background. So that's the part of this story I want to get to, Jamil. To, to yeah. what extent do we believe, then, that China is, is directing this? Would a government like Beijing have any reason to sponsor this behavior if it was not directing it? Well, look, absolutely, right? You know, a lot of times uh, governments use proxy actors. We've seen this in the terrorism context uh, with Iran, where they use Hezbollah. We saw what they did with Qatab Hezbollah in, in, in Iraq when they attacked American soldiers. So we've seen proxy behavior in the real world quite a bit. And in the cyber realm, the Russians have essentially, you know, patented this ability. They, they have a number of criminal gangs that operate in Russia, uh, conducting ransomware attacks, yes, for their own bank account and to make money, but also knowing the gov- Russian government will, will gain some benefit out of it. And, and actually what's really interesting about the Russian example is you often see Russian state hackers on the nights and weekends doing this business, and you know nothing happens in Russia without Vladimir Putin's sign-off, so we know there's, uh, there's sort of complicity there. Now, in China, we're only now seeing the development of this behavior, but we have every reason to believe, and I know the vice president, the president now, is looking into exactly what we have to attribute this to China, but we have now, the U.S. government has called this out, and said this is Chinese activity, Chinese government likely, and so now what has to happen is how do we hold them accountable, right? How do we defend ourselves better? There's a lot to talk about that front, but also how do we hold them accountable and make them pay a cost? Well, I'd like to know how we're going to hold them accountable. When you see a statement from not just the U.S., but the U.K., from NATO, it has a military ring to it here, obviously, and it makes it sound like the U.S. is gearing up on a, on a some sort of cyber wartime footing. What do you, as somebody in the business, want to see the government do? Well, you know, look, I think there's two really important things we've got to do. One on the defensive side, right? We've got to get better at our own defense, and part of that involves you know, today we operate as individual companies, individual government agencies. We don't act together. Even though these nation states are coming after us in a collective way, we don't collectively defend. And the Cyber State Solarium Commission last year called us out and said, look, we need a paradigm shift from individual defense to collective defense. Indus- companies with companies, industries with industries, and industry and government together. So that's one piece, the defensive side. On the offensive side, like what you're talking about, we've got to get tougher. We've got to extract costs. And that may mean a cyber offensive capability, but it also may mean sanctions, or other behaviors, we may work with the, with the, adver- you know, the enemy of our enemy, right? Our, their adversaries to help them get better, right? And part of the challenge here is that we're not really good at telling our enemies, hey, here are the things that you might do to me that will cause me to act out against you. Here's what I'm going to do to you. And then we don't actually impose costs. We talk a lot about it. We yes. say, oh, yeah, we'll act at the time and place of our choosing. But our adversaries have gotten used to us not doing anything. We've got to take action, and we've got to be tough. We're talking with Jamil Jaffer on Bloomberg Sound On. I'm curious, though, to what extent we can respond. Speak to me more specifically about this, Jamil. When you're advising clients, either through the National Security Institute or, or actual clients at IronNet Security, what is it that you want to see them do? Knock the lights out? Take the Internet down? What can specifically we do to really send a message to whether it's China, Russia, or any other government doing this? No, it's a great question, right? I think you want to respond in kind and you want to respond in a measured way, right? So when you talk about hacking, right, people often have to talk about cyber attacks and taking down the grid and taking out this and taking down that. Right? We haven't seen that happen here in the United States. The closest we've gotten to that is some of these ransomware attacks, which have spillover effects into critical infrastructure, right? We've right. seen, obviously, the, the, the colonial pipeline hack that led to a potential shutdown 
that pipeline, luckily, Colonial Pipeline got ahead of it. They shut down. They ultimately, for better or for worse, paid the ransom, right? Um, and they got ahead of it. Now, we have seen nation states probing our critical infrastructure, right? We've seen probes in the energy industry, the financial industry. We saw the Iranians take action, slow down uh, banks back in 2016, right? So we've seen this kind of behavior. But I think these nations have realized that if they go down that road, they may face really serious consequences from the U.S. They've gotten deterred in that space. It's the rest of this area, this massive uh, effort to, to steal intellectual property by the Chinese. They've yeah. stolen literally trillions of dollars, right? And, and this, of course, has been going on even without digital technology for decades with China. Jamil Jaffer of IronNet Security, I really appreciate your coming by. As you were just hearing, the White House today is pointing fingers at China over last year's Microsoft hack earlier this year, alleging that Beijing is at least protecting a group of hackers, if not more, in this case, in a series of other cases. And that's where we begin our conversation today with Neil Bradley, Executive Vice President, Chief Policy Officer at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Neil, thanks for coming over. Thanks for having me, Joe. It's great to see you here. This uh, potentially, not just China, but also Russia, impacts a lot of your members. Seeing all of these countries to come together, even NATO making a stand on this, makes this feel like a war footing. And I wonder if that's what you think we need. Well, I, you know, I, I don't know if it's exactly a war footing, but it's certainly something close to that. You know, we are seeing uh, both state-sponsored uh, cyber attacks as well as uh, state-countenanced uh, cyber attacks. And so, uh, you know, these are these are these are terrorists. They're intent on wrecking havoc uh, in the U.S. Eco- economic system. Uh, they're intent on uh, trying to steal, as criminal gangs would. Uh, from productive elements of society, and we rely on government. We count on government uh, to take the fight uh, to these cyber criminals wherever they exist. And so uh, we are pleased to see the action by the U.S. government, NATO, and others. We need to see more of that if we're going to if we're going to take this threat seriously. Well, that's what I'd like to ask you. Do you do you want to see something a message more forceful? And I realize that the White House could say something more tomorrow. The president will be briefed tomorrow morning. But when does it come time to really show off what we can do? Well, you know, at the end of the day, what we need is action, right? And so, um, you know, I'm not going to tell the government the right way to go after uh, these cyber criminals and the right way to put pressure uh, on the state, uh, the states who are countenancing or at least tolerating this type of behavior. Uh, But it's not different than things that we've seen before. We know how to put pressure on foreign governments. We know how to go after uh, international gangs and, and criminal networks. And that's what we ought to be doing today. And it takes a robust effort. It involves our law enforcement capabilities. It absolutely involves our diplomatic capabilities and global alliances. This is not just a problem suffered by the United States. It's a problem suffered by really all uh, capital uh, democratic societies. Mm -hmm. We're talking with Neil Bradley from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce here on Bloomberg Radio. Uh, You are no stranger to Capitol Hill. You spent a lot of years on Capitol Hill, and I know that you still talk to a, a number of Uh, of committee chairs, and we're in the throes of a grand debate over infrastructure. Are we going to get some answers this week? Do you want answers this week on how exactly this is going to work? 
Well, we do want answers. I think we'll see some answers. Uh, listen, we, we are closer today than we've been in the last two decades to enacting an historic level of investment in our nation's hard infrastructure. And so um, it took a lot of work on the behalf of a lot of senators from both sides of the aisle to get us to this point. You, all, you know, They always say that the last part of the deal is the hardest part of the deal. We're, we're at the last part of the deal. And so you know, I know Everyone is anxious to see it come to a conclusion. We certainly are at the U.S. Chamber. But listen, I think uh, Rob Portman, uh, Senator from Ohio, Kristen Sinema, Senator uh, from Arizona have done yeoman's work, and I think they're going to get this thing across the finish line. The aforementioned Ron Portman says there will not be IRS enforcement in this bipartisan deal. So how do we pay for it? Well, you know, it's uh, as they say, they overturn the couch cushions and uh, find out what change is underneath. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a fair level of kind of traditional Washington uh, pay force. I'm not going to say that any of them meet the textbook definition of, uh, of good budgetary financing, uh, but they're, they're real and they're meaningful. And, you know, they're going to fund a worthy and important cause. And that's finally getting our bridges and our ports and our water systems and our broadband to where it needs to be so that we can remain globally competitive. So the chamber does support the so-called pay-fors that were outlined in the framework? Yeah, I mean, would they be the pay-fors that we would write if if we were king for a day writing the bill? No, but we recognize that uh, this is a compromise, that you have to bring people together. Not everyone gets 100% of what they want. And you have to accept some things that maybe you don't want to accept. That's the nature of finding an agreement. Uh, I think that's lost on too many people because, frankly, we haven't seen enough of it in Washington these days. Yeah. Uh, But it's a reasonable compromise that moves the ball forward, and reasonable people ought to be able to support it. If if this comes down to deficit spending, and we don't know what form this will take, will your members push back on that? Will there be outrage? Will you hear from your member companies? No, I, no, I, I don't think so in this context. We know that there are real pay-fors that are part of this. We also know that unlike previous, previous proposals, this really is going to hard infrastructure so that we know that if you make investments in roads and broadband, if you make investments in the electricity grid, you will improve the productivity of the U.S. economy. And if you improve the productivity of the U.S. economy, we'll have an economy that grows grows faster. And ultimately, at the end of the day, that's what we need both to deal with the budget deficit in Washington and, frankly, to support U.S. families and businesses. We need a faster-growing economy. Our current state of infrastructure is holding that back. This uh, this bipartisan package will fix that and move us a long way towards getting us to the better growth trajectory that we want to be on. Many thanks for joining us here on Bloomberg Sound On and stay in touch with us from the chamber, Neil, as we get through this. This has become a very important week in debate around infrastructure as Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer pushes for a vote on cloture now. And, well, we don't even have a bill yet. And joining us to talk about this against the backdrop of an economic recovery that some think is looking more delicate is Congressman Don Beyer, Democrat from Virginia. Congressman, welcome back to Bloomberg Sound On. Thank you, Joe, very much. It's good to be back. Timeline is looking rather challenging at the moment, if not impossible. Are we about to find out if there is a cloture vote this week in the Senate that Democrats might have to go on their own on this, to go alone on infrastructure? Maybe, and Joe, I have suspected that all along. But I think you know, most Democrats, and I hope most Republicans, would rather have a bipartisan plan if they can get it. 
But, of course, everything I read today makes it seem very, very tentative, very fragile. Not the economic recovery uh, writ large, but the bipartisan plan put together by the Joe Manchins and Sue Collins and, and Susan Collins and others of the world. What's the biggest concern right now? Is it the pay-fors, the fact that the IRS enforcement will now not be part of that bipartisan framework? Yeah, although they seem to be substituting you know, some of the Medicare negotiations for that. Although, yeah. I, I, frankly, I'm confused about why the uh, IRS enforcement should be an issue. You know, we're, we're not talking about – we're only talking about collecting taxes that are actually due, you know, that people have been cheating on. Yeah. And why the Republicans would want to protect the cheaters when most of us, you and I, are all paying our taxes honestly and on time doesn't really – Compute for me. Well, what do you make of that? Is is the White House worried about Big Brother comments? You know, following the the Facebook stuff that Joe Biden was saying about COVID, about door to door response teams. Then you layer on the IRS, and we've got a trend. Yeah, except that I think that's a pretty silly and thin way to think about it. You might, a lot of my Republican friends talk about the ProPublica leak, where somebody illegally and wrongly, immorally released the tax data on 13 of the billionaires. And that was wrong, and it shouldn't have happened. But it's hard to go from that to thinking that every American or every rich American is somehow going to have their personal life uh, poured out onto the newspapers. That's just not happening. It's a, it's a huge leap. There's also the idea that um, you know the IRS is not going in and, and looking at uh, your text messages or your, your emails or uh, what they're doing is looking at um, bank account. What was it at the beginning of the year? Where did it peak and where was it at the end of the year, um, especially for your businesses? Um, so that if something seemed way out of sync, they could go investigate deeper. But um, it seems if, to be a pr- pretty mild way to go. If you're not convinced then that we've made up for the loss of, of money from IRS enforcement, are we about to have a whole new debate about how to pay for it? And I'm I'm asking you that with a little bit of a smirk, knowing this actually hasn't been written yet. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. It's, it's hard to know, but because there are other, uh, from the Democratic perspective, there's a lot of other um, very reasonable hanging fruit. You know, increasing the corporate income tax, this guilty regime where you have a minimum tax on uh, U.S. earning corporate earnings overseas. Because you have people like you know, Apple that go to Ireland and pay almost no taxes back to the United States. Um, things that, that clearly aren't fair. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but again, most of those are going to run into really serious Republican opposition. We just had the vice president of the and, U.S. chamber here uh, in the studio before our conversation, Congressman, and seemed actually in, in many ways flexible uh, for the chamber, but made clear that his members, that the chamber's members, are not going to put up with deficit spending and higher inflation. This has become a real household conversation. I know, but it's, it's hard when, when and I'm, I don't mean this to be partisan at all, but when, if you're a Republican and you say no new taxes, but also no deficit spending, where does that leave you? you know? oh, then, then it means you can't spend anything. Well, so how does that end? Are we going to start debating a gas tax again? Well, and, and that runs into, you know, that's interesting that a lot of the Republicans were for a gas tax or at least indexing it. But that runs against Joe Biden's promise not to raise taxes on people making $400,000 or less. I think of what it may run into, and I don't want to be pessimistic, but I have long thought that we go as far as we can on the bipartisan approach. In a perfect world, it works. But if it doesn't, that's why 
Mark Warner and Bernie Sanders and John Yarmuth in the House are preparing the the budget resolution that will allow us to do it on reconciliation. That is without any Republican votes. Yeah. It sounds like that's where we're going, Congressman. Yeah, it does. Um, and I think I, I personally, if you if I put a note in an envelope and sealed it, that's what it would say. Huh. Um, but I but I don't want to give up because a lot of good Republican and Democrats in the Senate have tried to work together to get something. So says the chair of the Joint Economic Committee in the House. This is a revealing conversation, Congressman. You're making me feel like I'm closer to the truth. Uh, Well, well, but you're you're relying on my crystal ball. (laughs) You are also on the House Science Subcommittee on Space and Aeronautics, Congressman. I have to ask you, having seen Richard Branson, well, we'll say go into space for the benefit of this conversation and about to see Jeff Bezos do the same. How come you're not going to space tomorrow? Well, it's too expensive, the one tomorrow. I guess we have our first paying customer, <laughs> first to, to an American, at least. I did watch the entire Branson flight. It was it was fun and fascinating. I did, too. And it it I, was I fascinating. See. How important is yeah, this, though, to the future of commercial in space? Well, I think on an inspirational sense, it's very important. I'm not sure, and, and this is a really just a small subset, you know, the, the whole space tourism. I don't think it really affects much what's happening to the larger scientific missions, you know, the James Webb Space Telescope, which will you know, dramatically increase our, our understanding of the, of the universe, and then the Nancy Grace Roman Telescope, which goes up in a year or two, and then the Mars and Moon and Mars missions, Artemis 1, 2, and 3. Uh, none of this has anything to do with that, but I guess it gets people focused on space and excited about it. It's going to have to get much, 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 much uh, cheaper for it to be accessible to any normal human being to get to go into space. And so the government will continue doing what it's doing at NASA and hence the House Science Subcommittee on Space and Aeronautics. That's where we, of course, find Congressman Don Beyer of Virginia, again, chair of the Joint Economic Committee with a lot to talk about today. Congressman, thanks for being with us again on Bloomberg Radio. Thank you, Joe, very much. Face it, your business is unique. It faces challenges and risks that are specific to your industry and to the skills you and your team bring to every challenge. You need experienced insurance professionals. The Hartford accepts the challenge. The Hartford understands that protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can help provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-sized companies like yours to easily manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford faces any challenge to deliver innovative, customizable solutions that your industry and your unique company demand. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. The clock is ticking faster on infrastructure. Did you notice that today? After Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer called for a cloture vote Wednesday in an effort to get things moving at last, knowing that lawmakers leave town in August. But I hate to keep reminding you of this. There's still no bill, nothing written. And one of the biggest sources of revenue hashed out in the bipartisan deal, money from IRS enforcement we're just talking about, is gone now. It's out at least for now. That's why some Republican senators say they will not move forward on the test vote this week. And so we ask again, will the bipartisan deal on infrastructure survive the week? 
we're not quite there yet. Uh, there's a lot of good work that's happened. Uh, two days is a, a lifetime in Washington, so uh, I don't think we're going to make predictions of, of the death of, uh, of the infrastructure package. Jen Psaki today, White House Press Secretary, in the briefing room, and we're joined now by Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shee and Zeno and Rick Davis. Great to be back with both of you. Jeannie, is it time for Democrats to circle the wagons here and start preparing to do this alone, or... Was that the plan the whole time? Yeah. If anybody told you that politics is boring, this is about <laughs> as exciting as it gets. I tell you, I have I, I, I've been nervous all day about this. You know, this is a big moment for for Chuck Schumer. He is really saying to his own colleagues, the Democrats, that they all have to get on board this thing. And he's also testing Republicans willingness to move forward on a bipartisan bill. That said, we know that this is something that a lot of majority leaders do and sometimes it succeeds and sometimes it doesn't, as we saw with Mitch McConnell and the Affordable Care Act. So it is a gamble for certain, and it is going to be a really telling few days here. Well, you've probably seen this movie before, uh, Rick Davis, with all the time you spent in the Senate and advising uh, Senator McCain. I just, I wonder, I'll ask you this maybe a slightly different way. Is is this the way the White House knew this would end the whole time, or, or are we going to actually get people on the record and attempt a at least cloture vo- vote on a bipartisan deal? Yeah, first of all, I mean, it, the White House is lucky they have uh, Joe Biden, a senator who used to do all these kinds of games to get his yeah. way. And so, sure, they understand what's happening here. And and look, Schumer's doing his part. He's saying, hey, I got a deadline on Wednesday. I'm going to take a closure vote. And that pushes all the conferees to try to get you know a deal done. But when they don't get the deal done, what are they going to do? This is like the 10th uh, deadline that we've had in the course of the uh, bipartisan negotiations that have been going on. And we're still making progress. The reality is the $40 billion that comes out of the IRS enforcement uh, in this package uh, that got kicked out by Republicans was double counted by the guys doing reconciliation who said $100 million b- billion was going to come out of IRS enforcement. So yeah. you can't keep counting the same money <laughs> in different bills. And that's part of the complexity of a $3.5 billion reconciliation package moving through the Senate at the same time a $1.2 billion infrastructure package is moving. It's a big grab by the Biden administration, and they need to let the Senate work its will. And right now, they are making progress that that these conferees, 22 members of the Republican Party and the the Democratic Party, are still meeting and still trying to get a bill done. But until we see the bill, who knows? Yeah, and I don't know if we, at this point, ever will, Jeannie. We actually have to remind ourselves that there's no bill yet, or product, as we like to call it, uh, here in Washington. But... How do you feel about this IRS funding matter, Jeannie Sheehan Zeno? This was supposed to be raising lots of money by going back around and enforcing the rules for people who did not pay their taxes. This is for tax cheating. What would be wrong with that? Uh, you know, it absolutely is is the right thing to do. But but to Rick's point, of course, you can't do it two times. I mean, if only we could all run our household budgets like that. Um, it, it just can't be done. And so I think there's going to be questions raised if this doesn't work when it was pulled over to the Democrats reconciliation bill, if they would have been better off leaving it with the bipartisan 
deal that over there. But now, of course, this has all become a huge debate about pay fors. So not only don't we have legislation written, we also don't have agreement on the most important part, which is the pay for part. And that's where this IRS enforcement is going to be fascinating. And oh, by the way, we still have to wait for the CBO to score this whole thing. And I think that that is going to be a really telling moment when they challenge probably both sides on much of what they hope to see in these bills. So, Rick, is there more going on here in in Chuck Schumer's head? Is he talking to Nancy Pelosi about this? I mean, is the Senate going to end up having the last word on any bipartisan attempt this week? Well, I mean, they, they certainly have the word this week, all the actions in the Senate. He probably isn't talking to Nancy Pelosi because she's just going to put more pressure on him. So uh, typically he's going to focus on talking to his caucus and saying, guys, get a deal done. But look, I mean, there, there's a lot of positive. I mean, when people like Susan Collins are at the table doing this negotiation and, and, and says to Schumer, hey, I don't think we can finish by Wednesday. It doesn't mean that they're not going to do a bill. It just means they got more work to do. And if if Wednesday at five o'clock when we do this show, if they're still working on that bill, it's still a good thing. Okay, will it will it be still underway, Jeannie, or are you more skeptical than Rick? I have been more skeptical than Rick this entire time, although I do think it'll still be underway. I agree with Jen Psaki completely. You can't write this thing off at this point. I think there's a lot of goodwill to get this thing done and a lot left to do. So I do think they'll still be working on it. But let's not forget, as we bring up Nancy Pelosi, she's the one who is pressuring to Rick's point, Chuck Schumer, and saying, we're not considering this thing until you pass both measures. That's part of the pressure that Chuck Schumer is under. He is getting it from all sides sides at this point, hence his sort of, you know, effort to move this thing forward quickly. And you hear Republicans and Democrats trying to put the brakes on that. And his yeah. treatment of Kristen Cinema is something he's got to be very careful about, I think. Well, you heard from Congressman Don Beyer uh, before you both came on. Virginia, Northern Virginia, 8th District Chair of the Joint Economic Committee. And he is sounding as skeptical as anyone. He said if he put the note in an envelope, there'd be no deal. But of course, everybody wants to let something happen. How about the economic recovery? This plays in. You heard from President Biden, spoke today from the White House on this. Interesting semantics, interesting optics. As the president and, of course, Democrats in the administration are feeling a lot of pressure, the Delta variant is real. White House is a bit of a different thing than Wall Street, but they're both moving on the same story today. The markets fell out of bed, if I can say that, on Bloomberg Radio because we're deeply concerned about whether this economic recovery will be in jeopardy come fall. 60% of cases are the Delta variant. Anthony Fauci, Dr. Fauci, saying today on the balance of power in an interview with David Weston, we're basically begging people now. So what we're seeing now in this country is a significant uptick in infections, particularly in those areas of the country, those states, cities, regions, counties, that have a very low level of vaccination. Whereas in contrast, in those areas with a higher level of vaccination, we're seeing less of an uptick. Says we're basically pleading with, the White House pleading with people to be vaccinated. They're referring now, Jeannie, to the unvaccinated pandemic, almost trying to pre-write this potential problem in the fall to say, well, you know what? Democrats in this White House did everything we could. How worried are you about the recovery? 
That's right. They have to be very worried. I mean, I think we are all worried looking at these numbers because they are very, very shocking over just the last week, if not the last two weeks. And of course, what happened on Wall Street today is indicative of that. And you can see the White House starting to panic a bit. They missed their 70 percent promise. And now they're trying to blame places like Facebook. They'd certainly deserve some blame in all of this. But they are looking to make the case that you just made, which it wasn't us. We did everything we could. But I think there's going to be a lot of questions if they tried to move too quickly from the sort of movement uh, a few months earlier and saying this thing was sort of over and move on to infrastructure and other things and not get all the vaccinations they needed to get done. Rick Davis, if there's an outbreak of, of a meaningful scale that actually changes the way we are living and working once again, if it puts our economic recovery in jeopardy, Does that actually help the infrastructure argument, actually motivate lawmakers to move this forward if we're still debating this in the fall? Yeah, the biggest problem is you may be having to consider another stimulus package for fighting the public health crisis that oh, might man. be you know, you going on. You did not on. just so say that. It's all the same money, right? I mean, you're either printing it at the Fed or you're, or you're tar- charging taxpayers. And so it, it, it is a bit of a train wreck. Uh, I think that the Hill wants to get th- these bills done and get out of here for the summer so that they can get back to their districts and see what's going on with the health crisis. Because as Dr. Fauci has pointed out, it's not the same in every state. I mean, some of these guys are going to get back and find out that their communities are doing just fine. And others are going to get back and find out their communities are in great distress because they didn't get vaccinated. And now they have this Delta virus burning through their system. So I think think the administration has always been clear since day one. Um, You can't have an economic recovery without a pandemic, uh, without getting people vaccinated. And I think they need to get back to that message and they need to continue that message probably for the balance of the year while they still try and manage all these reopenings and the congressional agenda. Boy, this is really something. This is going to be a heck of a week, Jeannie. If you don't beat COVID and you can't get the economy to recover the way you promised, this administration is going to have very little to show for its work by the end of the year. These are the two biggest things that the president promised. They are, and he is six months in now. Numbers only get worse, usually historically after this point. So the window is closing on the Biden administration, I'm sorry to say, and they are dealing with some of the largest issues they could be dealing with at this point. Yeah, Jeannie Sheehan, Zeno, and Rick Davis, this is why they are Bloomberg Politics contributors. Great to hash it out with you. We're going to do this again tomorrow. And like Rick said, I'll meet you Wednesday at 5 here as well on the East Coast if that vote is going to happen. The clock is ticking faster on Sound On. Meet you back here tomorrow. Thanks for joining us. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com.